0: Welcome to the ad nauseum
1: podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle.
0: Welcome, ad nauseum listeners, to episode 140 of our little podcast. As always, my name is Dr. David Sinowi. I am down here in the basement, the bunker, Vomitorium South, mm-hmm. with my good friend and sartorially sophisticated co-host, Dr. Jeffrey T. Winkle. How yep. are
1: you, Jeff? I'm feeling good today. Yeah, it's kind of bright and sunny out here. Yes. And the promise is, uh, as I understand it, kind of uh, higher than uh, normal uh, average temps for Incredible. the next, cu- next couple of weeks. Incredible. Spring-like.
0: And it is. I have uh, thus far carried through on my resolution for the most part. Yes, of not complaining about the bad weather. Excellent, and uh, you know this makes
1: it easy. It's been so easy.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, if we just if we can just get to March one, I know, right? That's th- kind of that. The, that's that threshold. Correct. Then yep. the possibility of bad weather invading uh, the mitten-shaped peninsula, yeah. is relatively small. That's right. It's it's very true. Exactly. Very true. So we just we're in the home stretch.
1: Yep. As I understand it, the uh, uh, the official groundhog. In Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. Uh, What did he say? He did not see his shadow. So that means uh, spring is imminent. Really? I'm hoping he's right this year.
0: Okay. Are you a Bill Murray fan? I am a Bill Murray fan. And you like that movie? I
1: like that movie very much. Yeah. Yeah. How about you? Have you seen seen
0: it? it? Yeah, I've seen it once and I liked it. Um, I didn't necessarily see where the great charm lies. Mm. I needed someone to explain it to me. Yes. But but it was nice. It was a nice movie.
1: I often use it in my... uh, I've shown it once in my world religions class as a as a view of um, kind of Buddhist okay. uh, reincarnation. Yes, the yeah.
0: transmigration of souls. Yes. Back you come. Yeah,
1: exactly. Hey, uh, how are you feeling down there?
0: I'm doing pretty well, thanks. Yeah, yeah today's a, a lovely day. Today, as you know, is uh, my day off, typically Monday, mm-hmm. uh, because a heavy work day for me as a pastor is Sunday. Right. Uh, I usually squeeze quite a bit of work into Monday, but it's work of a different kind. Gotcha. Uh, like this podcast. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So I like that quite a bit. and. Uh, A little note, not really a show note, but sort of a, I don't know, cultural observation. You might like this. On Friday, we were traveling for one of my children's uh, sports games. Mm -hmm. We went up to Big Rapids. Yes. Have you been up there?
1: I, I have. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, I've never noticed that the rapids were any uh, larger, bigger than the, gra- than the Grand Rapids. But uh, yeah, about the, to- there
0: must have been a small window of time when cities in Michigan were uh, rapidly looking around for the best sorts of rapid names. That's right. And they were
1: in competition. Grand, with them, and big, big grand and right. so
0: forth. Biggest. Right, right. But I saw something that truly, truly delighted me. What was that? It was a laser tattoo removal shop. <laughs> a laser tattoo removal shop. And guess what its name was? What? No regrets. <laughs> no regurts. Nice. Oh, That's brilliant. That is brilliant. That I want to find the person who came up with that and uh, get them on this program. That's
1: fantastic. I'm thinking that the laser tattoo removal is, is uh, what we would call a growth industry. Absolutely. <laughs>
0: yes. I want to buy into that.
1: Yeah, no doubt. Because
0: people have to have some second thoughts, right, about that that Greek or that, uh, you hear some, some horror stories of people putting Mandarin on their back and it says something like, uh, you know, the, the donut is stale and they wanted to say something like virtue forever. You right,
1: know? right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've encountered, um, a handful of people. Mm. Uh, I remember back in the days when I taught, when I was teaching Greek in the classroom of, of students or yeah. were very proud to show me their Greek tattoo Ugh. and it's something's you almost always off. That's right. Right. It's,
0: How do you control that, that, uh, wincing, cringing response? Are it, you, are you a good actor? Can you hide it? I can
1: usually hide it. Yeah, right. I can't. Right. So, I mean, it's, but somebody's made just more or less a permanent mark on their body right. and just say, well, that's doesn't say what you think it says. No, the accent shouldn't go there. Oh, whatever. well, <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. Hey, I thought of a. I was thinking this morning. Like, Lay it on me. I need a, like a, a to come up with like a Dave-worthy opening. Okay, you know sometimes you you have these little these little wonderful kind of humorous. Uh, you think they're I, humorous? Actually? Well, I do. I do. Right. So okay. Um, mine goes like this. I'll try to keep All it right. short. All so right. I was a. Uh, I was talking with an old high school friend of mine, yes. and we were um, reminiscing about the the yearbooks. Okay. And how you know, the yearbooks they would at the end of the year they'd have like you know the the mock elections. Oh right. people, And I remember they came to most me most likely
0: to be elected. Ex-
1: exactly right. And and so they came to me and they wanted to be a part of it. And okay. I, I wanted nothing to do with it. Right. So this
0: is the setup for a joke, this isn't it? Exactly. Okay.
1: Setup, right. And so um, they said, "No, we really want you to be a part of this." And I asked them to, you know, you need to withdraw my name. Okay. From consideration, but you know what? They put me in anyways, the most likely to secede. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I like it. Yes, I like it. Right, so I thought of that. I thought oh, that's 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 something I could hear. Yeah. Say.
0: yeah, yeah. So maybe we can develop that. No, I <laughs> won't. But um, you know, right, right before the Civil War, right, yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> all the states got together and signed each other's yearbooks. And <laughs> South Carolina, it was just
1: <laughs> most likely
0: <laughs> again and again.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. Very nice, Jeff. Thank okay. you. Very nice. So, what are we talking about today?
1: Uh, we are talking about we're talking about John one verse one, right? Yes. The and, Gospel
0: of John, chapter one, verse one.
1: We're getting into some some linguistic uh, nitis gritis. That's correct. Right. Some
0: philology, some theology, mm-hmm. and uh, I would say some very interesting history uh, with one of my favorite individuals, uh, one uh, Desiderius Erasmus. Yes, uh, the Dutch scholar, humanist, philologist, extraordinaire. Mm-hmm. We're going to throw in a little bit of Aquinas, a little bit of Augustine, Novation, Tertullian, Cyprian, and uh, Theodore Beza. Fantastic. So it's a yeah. who's who of what's what.
1: It is indeed, uh, and but to to kind of boil this down, we're what
0: this boil the, this down. He says we're gonna. How'd we're ta- you get a pun in there, Jeff? What's that? It's the name of the woman whose article. Oh, I didn't even. It was, we're basing our entire episode on
1: unintentional. What yeah, is, I mean, man, I'm just. I'm. You're I'm, just. I'm bebotting. and are scatting all over the place. And <laughs> scat- it's right. that shirt
0: you're wearing. Is that what it is, listeners? If you could see uh, what Jeff's wearing now, it is so impressive. I don't know what those little things are. Are those? Uh, one of those life preservers it, on there. It kind of, it's
1: like a life preserver mixed with a some kind of floral. I would say uh, it's pattern. a life
0: preserver crossed with a um, mistletoe.
1: Something like that. <laughs> I, I think it's, I, I put it on this morning. I was thinking this is kind of um, foreshadowing spring. It's great. Right there, right? I, I like yeah. it
0: very much. Yeah. It's something that you might wear, you know, when traipsing along behind Bacchus through the uh, sylvan glades.
1: Exactly. Did exactly. you pick
0: that out yourself, or is that no, a Beck this,
1: pick? This was uh, something that Beck picked out for so me. So she,
0: right? yeah. she just brings it home in a Kohl's bag and says, "Here, put this on."
1: More or less.
0: And you say, that, "Okay."
1: That's that's really very little exaggeration that you just described there. <laughs> Okay. But ba- but back to Sorry, our, our boil, topic. Sorry, boil so it down, you were saying. We're talking about, we're really talking about one word, right? This is an article that's really grappling with that. And this has always kind of fascinated me and bothered mm-hmm. me, is the word logos. Yes. Right? In the beginning was the word is that's the way correct. that's usually translated. And this this article, uh, Ms. Boyle, mm-hmm. um, really talks about the history of the of the difficulty in translating that word into latin that's correct. and and tr- tr- in considering the kind of the wide range of um of concepts uh, that are embedded in that word right?
0: absolutely so jeff yep. uh, we don't have a shout out today do we we do not sadly hmm. right a- any um any theories as to why
1: uh, i mean i think our our, our audience is cerebral and, and yeah. often kind of maybe a little bit introverted and, yeah. and maybe a little shy. Again, there's nothing wrong with that. But no. uh, this is, I mean, we'll take this opportunity as a gentle prod to like, yes. let us know who you are. We want to celebrate
0: you. That's correct. We yes. want to give you your 15 minutes of uh, uh, relative obscurity. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay, so as, as we said, today we're dealing uh, with an article written by Marjorie O'Rourke Boyle. And uh, she's a scholar who published this in 1977, and the title is Sermo, Reopening the Conversation on Translating John 1.1. It was published in Wigilii Christiani, September 1977, and uh, it's published by Brill. And what it's looking at is John 1.1, as you say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So that's the common translation. Let me read the Greek here uh, from the Nessel Aland. Uh, 28, the 28th edition. It sounds like this. Is that all right? Yep. Okay. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Mm-hmm. So the entire um, episode today is going to center around this word, like you said, halagos, and look at two candidate translations for this. And we're going to look at um, the long tradition of taking it as uh, halagos as sermo, which you could translate as speech, conversation, um, something like linguistic self-disclosure, and how that was replaced by Jerome uh, with a more mundane word, uh, verbum mm-hmm. or verbum, if you want to say it like that. Then along comes uh, Erasmus in the sixteenth century. And he reintroduces Cermo, and this opens up a can of worms. That's
1: right, right. And to even to to um, stretch a little bit uh, closer to the present day, I believe that um, at the end of the article, Boyle suggests that maybe it's time to bring the sermo back. Yes. And uh, so sermo okay, to Werbum back to sermo. That's right. I thought this was really interesting. And before you kind of you dig into this, um, right. You know, when I when you sent me this article and I read it, um, I was reminded about how. I've always disliked that English translation mm. of, of word, right? In the beginning was the, was the word, right. right? And, you know, and once I started to learn Greek and can kind you of understand logos and kind of all the stuff that's embedded in that, it made me dislike the translation word mm. even that much more. And so yeah. maybe at the end, as we could talk about, would there be a, a better English translation? Well, I don't know. It, it's, it's really difficult. It's
0: highly fraught because halagos, as the article and the history of the discussion proves, is such a rich well, word. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. It,
0: it's such a rich concept, and there have been suggestions that there are Heraclitean—that is, the, the the philosopher Heraclitus. There are Heraclitean uh, references and allusions in what John is saying. That that seems to me unlikely that hmm. the Apostle John would have known that. Yeah. But the word had a, a tremendous history before John chose it uh for the beginning of his gospel. Right. And how how are we possibly going to um reflect that idea uh in English speech. Right. So as we'll see when we discuss it, um one of the solutions to this has simply been to leave it untranslated. Oh, okay. Yeah, and just yeah. say in the beginning was logos. And uh, Logos uh, was with God and Logos was God.
1: Yeah. And I think Boyle mentions that that was even the choice of some early um, Latin yes. translators that so don't even bother. And just That's keep, correct. Just, just uh, keep it in the Greek.
0: Yeah. And a potential analog for that uh, is the, the noun ta baptisma, right? Ta baptisma, baptism. Mm-hmm. So there's the Greek verb baptizo. And a lot of debate about exactly what does that mean, hmm. right? And I get asked this question a lot because, uh, you know, as a as a reformed Protestant, I believe that there is, you know, a proper mode of baptism, but I know persons who would be historically called Baptists or Anabaptists, and they have a different view of that, yeah. right? So I often get asked, what does the word literally mean, yeah. right? Because they think that, um, I guess, if there's just kind of one lexical entry, that will solve all the controversies. uh uh-huh. Obviously, it's much more complicated than that. Uh, so what did the early church fathers do with that? They pretty much refused to translate it. They brought it directly into Latin by a um, a transliteration, right? Mm-hmm. There are other words that existed, like mergeo, mergere, you know, to put underwater, and so forth, submergeo but no, they just, um, and the words to sprinkle if it means that. Yeah, yeah. But no, they just kept it as baptizo, right? Yeah. And um, then the nouns like uh, baptismum uh, that came from it. So there's precedent, I'm yeah. saying, for just punting, right? Yeah. If you, you can punt on a, on a loaded word and just refuse to bring across the meaning, just to leave it. Right?
1: Yeah. 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 I was wondering before you before we dive right into the kind of the, the linguistic um, details I wonder if you could say a little bit about uh, kind of the intellectual early intellectual uh, climate that's going on here so I mean we're gonna hear a lot of names Cyprian and Tertullian. right I mean what's what's happening here in the second and third centuries in terms of like the the intellectual development of, of Christian thought right and what, could you could you kind of set the stage well, of, of, of of
0: where we're at, I can try. Okay, but these are going to be the broadest brushstrokes. Okay, okay, right? that's fine. So anyone who's listening and uh, is either a more expert than I, which no doubt there are many, uh, who or um, who want something deeper, understand these are broad brushstrokes. Okay, and uh, you know if you if you email me, I can point you to more specifics. Uh, these are the books you'd want to read, and so forth. So okay, that, that's just a caveat. I got to be careful. Sounds good. Uh, Well, I mean, in in the most general terms, right, the earliest Christians were by and large not intellectualized. Right. We know that. The earliest Christians came from Palestine. Uh, You have some indications that uh, there was uh, members of Caesar's household from Paul's letters, right, who were adopting the Christian faith. You have some high society ladies, uh, both Roman and Jewish, who converted to Christianity so that by the end of the first century A.D., there may now be a little bit of an influx of um, intellectual, educated persons into the into the Christian communities. Uh, you have the Apostle Paul, who of of all the um, the early leaders in uh, in the Christian Church was by far the most educated, right? Except for maybe Apollos, who was uh, by uh, by legend an Alexandrian Jew, um, but we don't know anything about him mm-hmm. really. Uh, he's one candidate for the. Um, composition of the book of Hebrews. That's right. That's right. Yeah. But when we get into the middle of the second century, then we have some of the first uh, Christian scholars. Now, I'm not in any way saying, you know me well enough, uh, that this is some kind of a better development, right? Yeah. I, I'm not giving a pro-intellectualized um, discussion of you know what's necessary for the Christian faith, but just just a description of what happened, right? Okay. So Justin Martyr comes along. Uh, And he writes uh, in Greek to uh, the Roman emperor, and uh, he begins to develop apologetic arguments for the Christian faith in the face of challenges from um, Jews and and, uh, pagans alike. Mm -hmm. And uh, so for the next couple hundred years, you have this process uh, continue to develop. So you have men like Arnobius of Sicca, and you have Irenaeus of uh, Lyon, who was... um, from Asia Minor and spoke Greek and now he finds himself in southern France somewhere uh, leading a congregation there writing in Greek against various um, heresies the Marcionites the Gnostics and there are so many different uh, sects um, that are active at the time that to a disinterested observer Christianity would just seem like yet another sect right, right? you've right, got right, right. you've got mithras mm-hmm. you have um neoplatonists you have the gnostics you've got zoroastrianism all these things are um in the air yeah. you might say yeah. but eventually a tradition of um, intellectual christianity developed so arnobius of sicca early to mid third century then lactantius you've got tertullian from about 180 to 250 perhaps uh, Tertullian was um, an accomplished Roman orator and lawyer in his own right uh, before he became a Christian. A
1: North African. That's right. correct. Yep.
0: Um, and in fact, uh, one of his legal opinions um, appears in a preserved Roman code, right? One of his legal uh, oh, positions. Is that right? I didn't know yes. that. Yeah. Yep. I think it's in the pandects, as it's called. Uh, but then Tertullian, you know, he uses his considerable Roman oratorical skill uh, and his, his research and Intellectual ability, and he begins to try to give Christianity a more thorough, uh, intellectualized explanation.
1: And at this point, we're talking about something that's very decentralized, right? It's, I mean, do, it, yes, it's, it's, uh, all these things are kind of happening concurrently, but they're not handy. in many different places. But not in tandem with one another. That's right? correct. Okay,
0: right. and you begin to see, um, you begin to see two separate tracts being developed. You start to see a Western tract. Which is uh, conducted primarily in Latin, although mm-hmm. many people in the in the Roman West can still speak Greek well. And you start to see an Eastern tract, you know, developed um, in Antioch and places even further east, um, where the knowledge of Latin is rare or non-existent. So right. eventually, these linguistic differences lead to a, a split in the two churches, right. not just over language, over many things, um, but I think the. The seeds or the beginnings of that is in the second and third centuries. Yeah, right.
1: interesting, interesting. Right. And
0: then you move along and, you know, Tertullian has coined the term Trinitas uh, to describe what he sees as the, you know, the biblical phenomena of uh, one God and three persons. So mm-hmm. he he coins the term Triunitas, And there are many, many different uh, translations of the Bible into Latin. Um, they may have begun as early as uh, the first century. Now, um, critical scholars and skeptics would say that none of the scriptures that we count as the New Testament uh, were written in the first century. I don't accept that view. Mm -hmm. Um, We can talk about that on another occasion, uh, a book by a guy named Wenham, um, uh, revisiting the the intertextuality of the Gospels. I'm pretty convinced that the Gospels are are nearly as old as they uh, appear to be, right? Yeah. That they were written by the apostles or their immediate successors. Right, right, right. Uh, but anyway, um, you have the potential for Latin translations of the um, some aspects of the New Testament, even at the end of the first century a- AD, but surely by 160, 170, um, you have <clears throat> a number of different codices that show the Gospels in particular, and then the different letters that are circulating.
1: So when Boyle uses the term the old Latin Bible, yes. that's referring to these, these, these lost early Latin no, translations it's, it's or
0: something before the Vulgate, okay. which had come into common usage. And, uh, we have fragments of it still. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so it is what the Vulgate replaced, but I'm saying that, you know, it's possible there were Latin translations in use in Rome and other predominantly Latin speaking cities at the beginning of the second century, yeah, there's no evidence, but I don't see any reason to disbelieve it, right? Um, but certainly by the end of the second century, um, not only are uh, the the books of the New Testament circulating in Greek, but there are evidences of Latin translations.
1: Okay, all right. And
0: so by the third century, you know, mid uh, to late two hundreds, you have established traditions of Latin translations of the Bible. This is what Jerome replaces in his translation into the Vulgate, which is near the end of the 4th century. Gotcha. The famous story, he goes off to uh, Bethlehem and he works on uh, creating a translation of the Old and New Testaments uh, from Hebrew and Greek, respectively. Interesting side note. Yes. uh, When he, um, it talks about this with Augustine, in a letter, Augustine at first objects and says, don't translate the Old Testament from Hebrew because uh, the people are really used to the Septuagint translation of the Psalms and other parts of the Old Testament. You know, they, they, know, they know their Latin version as translated from the Greek. Okay, Don't mess up the, the standard liturgy and practice of the church by translating it from Hebrew because it's not going to be identical.
1: Oh, that's so interesting. And
0: yeah. uh, this is one where I think, you know, Augustine gets a mulligan. So <laughs> if, we, if we compare Augustine and Jerome, my sympathies are, you know, almost 100% with Augustine. Yeah. But here, you know, I got to give Jerome the nod. He right. was right. Augustine uh, whiffed on that. Yeah. Uh, and later Augustine recognized it. And, yeah. And he said, you know, after further reflection, you're right. I support your project of, of bringing the Bible into Latin from the Hebrew instead of from the Greek.
1: That's interesting. Yeah, and from what I, what I understand is, as kind of the the persona and personality of Jerome as it survives, is uh, he was going to do it his way, absolutely, no matter what anybody told him. Yes, right? uh, someday
0: we should do an episode on um, the biography of Jerome by J. N. D. Kelly. It's just an excellent uh, his his writings or his life writings and controversies. Yeah, and as I'm reading through it, I'm thinking how much I dislike Jerome, Uh the whole, it's a brilliant biography. And I'm thinking how much I dislike this. And then I'm thinking, uh uh-oh, he sounds a lot like me. (laughs) I don't, I'm not comparing myself to him in terms of education, but just irritability and temperament. (laughs) And now I'm thinking, maybe that's why I dislike him so much. (laughs) Has that ever happened to you? You kind of use, you're You're reading something that you have a reaction to. And then Mm -hmm. you realize, well, this is like a mirror.
1: Yes. No. I. You know. I just had that. Actually. I. Um. I picked up a book out of the library. I won't. I won't say what kind of the theme was, but uh, the premise sounded great. Yeah. Online, I picked it up. I was reading it, and the um, it just the the author's style just really grated. I mean, it uh, irritated me. And then I was thinking about it. I said, you know, this sounds like something I would write. <laughs> it's just the, the word choice, the references. Is like, yeah. oh, and I think that's why I don't like
0: it. Yes, right? that's so. Um, I don't know. That's so. What's discomforting when, when that happens? It is. So disconcerting. I, I really dislike it. It's like hearing your own voice, right? Yes. Uh, if other people say your voice is okay, all right, fine. But then when you hear it, oh, it's just so,
1: grating. Right. Gaffigan has a, has a bit about, he says, you know, he says something like, Do you ever see a picture of yourself and it ruins your day? <laughs> <laughs>
0: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So that's what it was like for me to read uh, the biography of Jerome. Jerome. I learned a lot. I grew in my appreciation for him. He was right about this and Augustine was just wrong about it. Uh, but boy he's he doesn't come across as a lovable guy.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, that was excellent. That was exactly what I was okay. I was looking for. So I think that sets the table very nicely. But so I'll, should we dive into some yeah. linguistics here?
0: Yeah. So in addition to relying upon Boyle's article, Sermo reopening the conversation from 1977, I also tracked down this volume and uh, this is courtesy Courtesy of the uh, Calvin University Heckman Library, where I still have um, borrowing privileges. So this is her 1977 monograph. I think I'm going to buy this. I found a copy online. So uh, you folks online who buy used books... When you hear this podcast, you stay away from this one, okay? Yeah. This hey, is, Back
1: off. This is mine.
0: Because <laughs> there may be only a couple hardcover copies in circulation, and uh, I got my eye on you this You know one. our
1: listeners. You never should have said a thing.
0: You're right. They're going to just- <laughs> Those uh, vultures. They're going to just pounce on it like a, a cat on a fat mouse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the title is Erasmus on Language and Method in Theology. All right. And I've been reading a lot of Erasmus. Um, You're you're, you're a fan. Well, I'm I'm a fan of his brilliance and accomplishments. Yeah. But again, it's like, it's like Jerome. Oh, really? Yeah. I think Augustine would be um, a little cuddly. I think Augustine would be a little fuzzy, right? Yeah. Augustine's a guy I could have a beer with. Definitely. Jerome and, and Erasmus. Not so much. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think they'd give me the time of day. Yeah. Okay. All anyway. Right. All right. So this is uh, page three of this 1977 monograph all published right. by the University of Toronto. And this is how Boyle starts. She says, "In the beginning, there was speech. In that very beginning, when God created the world and everything God made, He made by speaking. Then, in February 1516, an undistinguished theologian, Erasmus of Rotterdam." published a Greek and Latin edition of God's New Testament. Exhausted by a life's labor compressed into months, he awaited the scholarly consensus of theologians. Already heartened by the approval of Leo X, Pope and patron of the humanities, Erasmus' delight increased as congratulatory letters argued the way, augured the way to immortality. By August, he could boast to Johann Reuchlin, quote, "...the New Testament has earned me many friends everywhere." not friends only. Some academic theologians were rankled by his boldness. He had, after all, never completed the course of theological studies at Paris, and his only record of lectures was not a brilliant examination, but a jocular note to an equally bored student." Controversy flared into inve- invective, and Erasmus was soon penning defenses of his text, of his method, of his exegesis, and of his character.
1: Wow, I had no idea that Erasmus kind of came out of nowhere. Yes. Wow, that's well, amazing. Well, you
0: know, he was um, uh, by legend, he was the son of a, the illegitimate son of a priest.
1: I didn't know this. I don't, I don't know much about Erasmus. Mm-hmm. At all. that's okay. All right.
0: The most amazing thing about his life is just his his brilliance. Yeah. Right. Uh, James J. O'Donnell, you probably recognize that name. uh,
1: Uh, Augustine Scholar. Correct. University
0: of Pennsylvania. Um, He once made the claim that um, Erasmus was the cleverest man ever to write Latin. Hmm. And I've thought about that a lot since then. And I think I would give it to Ovid. Hmm. The problem is we have no Ovidian prose.
1: Right, right. right? All we
0: have is poetry, but it's so hard to beat Ovid. Come on.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that would be it. that would be an interesting throwdown. Exactly. Yeah. Cage match, Erasmus. That's right, Erasmus versus v. Ovid. Ovid. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so let me skip ahead here to, book, uh, to page six, because this will set the stage. The charges which the inflamed scholastics leveled against Erasmus were two. The first, exemplified by the sermon of an English bishop, Henry Standish, raving in the churchyard of St. Paul's London, was that Erasmus had altered the traditional ecclesiastical reading, quote, for when, up until now, for more than a thousand years, the whole church has read in principio, in principio erat verbum, now, at last, if it pleases the gods on high, a little Greek somebody will teach us that we ought to read in principio erat sermo. The second charge, reported from the sermon of a Carmelite preacher in the church of St. Gudula, Brussels, was that Erasmus, quote, has not feared to correct the gospel of St. John therefore condemning what the evangelist himself wrote. Ooh. End quote. "Similar trouble stirred in Paris, as Erasmus learned from the letters of friends." Now there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Now I, I correct me if I'm wrong though, in the in the, the Boyle article we read uh, she states that in the it seems from the earliest Latin translations, sermo was the originally preferred term. Absolutely. And it switches to, to werbum. That's right. And then uh, Erasmus gets in hot water for bringing sermo back.
0: That's correct. Okay. Yes, that's exactly it. Okay. And uh, so, you know, we're going to examine the article in some detail. But in this, this paragraph that I just read from the monograph, uh, page six, we see uh, this fellow Henry Standish complaining about the upsetting of tradition. Right, which mm-hmm. is one kind of criticism. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a fairly traditional person in many many ways. So I would say, you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Right, kind of. It's
1: kind of like Augustine saying to Jerome, "Don't exactly. go to, don't go to the Hebrew. Right. Correct. Yeah, because yeah. we know.
0: everybody knows uh, the Psalms from the Septuagint. That's what they've been singing. Now you're going to, you know, you're going to, you're going to you're going to redo it, and the um what the cover's not going to be as good. Right. 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 right, right. But the second charge from this fellow, this Carmelite preacher of the Church of St. Gudula, Brussels, is different. It's a a theological criticism um, that Erasmus, quote, has not feared to correct the Gospel of St. John. And this gets at something deeper, which was later to have a lot of uh, implications for Catholic-Protestant relations because uh, humanists in the 16th century came from all the traditions, right? Mm-hmm. So there were, there were Lutheran humanists of, of fine distinction, Melanchthon. There were uh, Swiss and German reformed humanists. Uh, there were Roman Catholic humanists. There were Anabaptist humanists. They all read the three languages, uh, Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. Mm-hmm. Um, it, was, it was a shared inheritance. But on what basis should the arguments be conducted? this was one of the contended points for sure yeah and so that at the council of trent um which concluded its work in uh, 1563 i believe uh they came down very hard on appealing to the greek and hebrew manuscripts for uh deciding theological matters and they endorsed jerome's vulgate Uh ah okay this is the basis yeah it's in the canons of the council of trent this is the basis for deciding Theological controversy. That's really you, you can and ought to read the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts. And again, um, guys like Bellarmine, uh, a famous Jesuit, these these were fantastic scholars. I'm not denigrating. I'm not a Roman Catholic, but I'm not in any way denigrating their learning. It was more a matter of what's going to be the basis f- right. for our decisions. Right. 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 So if you swap out "sermo" for a "verbum." I'm trying to use the ecclesiastical, sense, so you know, verbum. There you go. It's yeah. hard for me, but I know. if you swap it out after a thousand years, are you in fact threatening yes. the church's theology?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It reminds me of, you know, I've, uh, on a handful of occasions, I've run into Christians who treat the King James translation in a similar kind of way. Um, that is that, you know, it's, it's, it's such a, yeah. it's become kind of the ancient foundation. Correct. Right? And so, and so that becomes, that becomes the thing you don't mess with. Sure. But, what
0: translation were you raised on? Uh, NIV. Okay. Yeah. How about you? King James. Uh, were you really? F- yeah. For the first 12 years of my life. Is that maybe? right? And, um, so I don't know it as well as many people do, but the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me lie down. Yeah. It has beauty to it. Sure. And, um, in terms of accuracy, I'll vouch for it, um, you know, for three quarters of the day, not all day long. Um, I think it has weaknesses because any translation is going to be an imperfect representation of, of the original. Of course. And in fact, the Reformed Confessions that I subscribe, they make it very clear. It's the original uh, autographs yes. in their languages that are authoritative. Right. Things that come after it, they have problems. Yes. And the same is true of Jerome. Um, And Erasmus, you know, had the temerity and the audacity, the chutzpah. Right. Uh, Chutzpah must be what? Like a Polish word or something? I don't know. know. Yeah. I just threw that in there.
1: But I mean, so Jerome had become the the, in a way that um, by the time we get to the Renaissance, Aristotle was kind of, was was the major authority that had to be then kind of Taken down a few notches. That's right? correct. You don't, you, if Aristotle said it, it's it's like it's from it's from Olympus. And that's
0: right. Ipsodixit, it right. Yeah. He, him, Pythagoras said it, so it's got to be true. Right. Uh, Cicero has that great um, anecdote. It's probably in the Tusculan Disputations. I don't remember where uh, Cicero is criticizing the students of Pythagoras, and uh, the students of Pythagoras they don't bother to make arguments. They make a you know an argumentum ad alturam just a simple appeal to authority. Right. Ipsidixit, uh, you know, that, that settles it. So right. Erasmus had the temerity, the audacity to say, hmm, I don't think Verbum is right. Uh, I'm going to revive sermo."
1: And maybe, in you know, certainly in his day and age, maybe in any age, Sometimes it takes someone who's an outsider, yes, to to have the nerve
0: to do that, right? You think Erasmus wore a, a leather jacket and had long hair? I'm picturing him. As, He's as a, riding a motorcycle, kind of like a Fonzie, like a James <laughs> Dean. James <D>. Yeah, James Dean. Fonzie. <laughs> yeah, Fonzie's like the the uh, the poor man's James Dean. Yeah, exactly.
1: I think James Dean is probably the better corollary here. Yeah, right. <laughs> Just
0: like uh, you know Gerald McRaney. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Simon and Simon. Of course. Yes. Great yeah. Great theme song. Yeah. Uh, Agreed. He's kind of like the, the poor man's um Tom Selleck. <laughs> that's right on. Who is the poor man's Burt Reynolds, right? <laughs>
1: that's right, exactly. Off we our, keep going back. How far
0: back we going to go?
1: Yeah, who, who's the platonic form? Burt uh, I mean, oh, <laughs> Reynolds, you're getting close. Yeah. Brando.
0: Mustache. Did Brando have a mustache?
1: No, he never did, but okay. I mean, he's kind of like the the, the tough guy, Yeah. Um, alpha male. Steve McQueen, maybe. Mm, yeah. Okay. okay.
0: Yeah. But so that's that's kind of the figure that Erasmus cut yeah. in the early 16th century. 1516 his Novum Instrumentum, the new tool, right? The new tool, the new um the new guide to reading the New Testament and he said, "Uh here's my Greek text." And um here's what I'm going to do for John 1:1 in the beginning was the Sermon. Man. Okay, so Jeff, we don't really have time to dwell on the monograph uh and there's another problem. Yes. I haven't read all of it yet. Oh, that is a problem, yeah. <laughs> so again, listener, if you like this book, just stay away, okay? Just Yeah, just hold off. Hold off. That's right. Maybe that's what I should say. <laughs> hold off. Am I being too aggressive? No, that's all right. Okay. you,
1: you got to lay down the, the, the law. I yeah. feel
0: a little punchy. Yeah. Uh, but we do have time to deal with the article, right? Oh, yep. Because the article is very manageable, and those who have access to JSTOR... Uh, they can uh, find it for themselves. But um, could you uh, read the, the first paragraph? Because sure. I think it's a pretty nice summary of where we're headed next. Yes.
1: In the beginning was the conversation, not the word. From Tertullian to Beza extends a tradition of translating logos in John 1.1 1, 1 as sermo, a tradition now forgotten even by curators of antique words. Only when Erasmus restored the variant in his second edition of the New Testament, 1519, and defended it with a battery of philological and patristic arguments did the translation incite public debate. With the Tridentine sanction of the Vulgate's verbum, verbum, however, the impetus for the tradition of sermo ceased. And although fortified by Calvin's uh, commentary on John, Beza translated logos as sermo in his New Testament editions. The proliferation of vernacular Bibles among Protestants soon submerged the philological and theological issue.
0: Yeah, that, thank you. That is very succinct on the part of our friend yes, Boyle. yeah. Uh, specifically this, this sentence, with a tridentine sanction of the Vulgate's verbum. So that's what I was trying somewhat clumsily to summarize earlier, that after the Council of Trent, which I think met from 1547 to 1563, okay. they said, this is the authoritative version. Ah this uh work of jerome the Vulgate. this is now the court of appeal for theological arguments Mm. now verbum is enshrined is off the table but beza uh, had five different editions and we'll have to talk a little bit about him of his uh major annotations on the new testament Mm. and uh, in the very first one he says erasmus i'll read a little bit after the after the ads erasmus correctly changed this from verbum to sermo and from there on out pretty much all english translations of the bible are inspired by uh beza's reading
1: okay okay all right and and speaking of beza's readings yes i I believe it's time for the ads (laughs) okay This episode of Ad Nauseam is brought to you by the good people at Ratio Coffee. Ratio Coffee, found at RatioCoffee.com, is a place where you can go to find everything that you need to have a delicious gourmet brewed coffee right in your home. Dave, this morning as I always do this morning. I had uh, had my water ready to go. I had my metal cone ready to go. Right. And I brewed up uh, just a perfect pot of coffee in my ratio eight.
0: Fantastic. Same for me. I love my morning ritual, right? I get up, I get the eggs started. I get the bacon started. I put some fat in the pan. That's got to be a song.
1: Put some fat in the pan. Put
0: some fat in the pan. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Blues, jazz, something like that. Sure. And while that's going, then I start in on the ratio. And it's so nice because you get things set up and then you know my my eggs and bacon are finished and the ratio is just humming along yep. with precision technology, a beautiful aesthetics. It's quite a machine. I have the eight. You've got the eight. I've got the eight. I,
1: I for a while I had the six, mm-hmm. got kind of the younger brother of the eight, which is also an excellent machine.
0: And yours is in uh, stainless steel. Stainless is that right? steel. Yeah. Okay.
1: I got the I got the the hulking flagon. That's right. That keeps that thing warm for hours with no need for any kind of under uh, cost system. That's or, right. Yeah. Do you
0: like the um? Do you like the rubber bung that you stick in the top of that thing? It's a perfect fit, isn't it? It is not its a perfect it? fit, yeah. You rotate it 90 degrees, you're going to get no slop while you're carrying uh, the hulking flag on around your domicile. Yeah. Everything
1: about the machine is just, it's so wonderfully designed. Right. I mean, it looks so simple. It's kind of, it reminds me of the Parthenon. It looks so simple, but you know, if you consider the details, there's nothing simple about it.
0: Right? And without all the extensive scaffolding <laughs> right. of the last 30 years. Yeah, <laughs> no, no scaffolding, right? right.
1: And no, none needed, yeah.
0: So that's your morning ritual. It is, and, yep. And uh, Mrs. Winkle is a big coffee fan as well. Yep. She likes
1: it? She does. She loves it. I'm, I brew it up and the ritual, I will bring her a cup once it's ready. And yeah, it's a, it's a great way to start the day.
0: Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's mention the coupon code now, and yep. then maybe we can say a few other things. So the, the coupon code for February is A N that's ad nauseum C O coffee, A N C O three and then Q. Yes. And what's the Q stand for? It's
1: got to be for quality.
0: That's exactly what I right. was thinking. Right. The Q is for quality.
1: You're right. I was going to say uh, chaotic, but that, uh-huh. that, that doesn't work.
0: Right. It's, it's, it's uh, I, don't, I don't imagine Don was <laughs> drinking coffee while he was tilting at windmills. No, 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 no. Right. A-N-C-O three Q. And what does that get them?
1: So if you go to ratiocoffee.com right. and you pick the the, um, um, the the object of your choice. The, the,
0: eight, the eight, which is the, it's the flagship. It's the flagship. It's the millennium Falcon, it's going to set you back a little bit. Yep. But why would you want to buy a, an inferior product? Of course, right. Or the six, right?
1: Right, which is a um, uh, uh, little bit uh, less costly. Yeah. But attainable. Still attainable, or a wonderful machine. And we should mention that on the way is coming the four,
0: very soon. Yeah. Yeah, the Ratio Four. And uh, so this is a little bit here from. Well, we should tell them what do they get.
1: Right. So if you if you type in that coupon code anco 3 q that will get you fifteen percent off your entire
0: order. That's correct. Yeah. And the four is coming along. So this is from the RatioCoffee.com website. I like this title, As Easy As Pods, But So Much Better. Mm. So they're talking about the Keurig and uh, they say, ever wonder what the convenience of a Keurig really costs? I know, Jeff, you've been lying awake at night, tossing and turning. Oh, Keurig costs. Co-
1: exactly. Pods. Sorry, talking in my sleep, driving right. my wife crazy. Right. Yeah. You, you
0: wake up in the morning and someone's taken a Like a sharpie and scratched it on the wall. Yes. With a little equation. Keurig equals question mark. (laughs) Exactly. I know. Uh, Rachel says we did too. On average, $33 to $50 a pound, depending on the roaster. Can you imagine? That's crazy. I had no idea that uh, a Keurig, it cost that much. Mm. For mediocre coffee brewed with haste and waste at the forefront into throwaway plastic pods. It's a lot of truth there. Uh, ratio says we offer a better way buy fresh from your local roaster and have the four brew up a cup the taste will be monumentally better
1: yep i can vouch for that
0: because the four i mean i haven't had it in my kitchen yet i've seen a lot of the uh, promotional material has all the same great technology and features as the six and the eight mm-hmm. but it makes a, it makes a half pot and it's going to be a more within reach, you might say, of your average uh, coffee consumer.
1: Yeah, I'm excited for that to come out and, f- and to plug it right here in this space.
0: Absolutely. Check it out. This episode of Ad Nauseam is also brought to you by Hackett Publishing, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, hackettpublishing.com for nigh unto 53 years now bringing high-quality translations and original work to a broad audience of those interested in classics. Jeff, what do you think about Hackett, and just how grateful are you for their support of this podcast?
1: Very grateful. Um, as we've often said, these guys have been with us from almost the very beginning. We're coming up on... the uh, almost We're going five, on four years, four years, believe it or not. Right, and they, they've stuck with us. They are one of these wonderful companies that is keeping the flame alive, uh, putting out there that the classics, not in these... Hardcover, you know, $325 volumes, but these are, are uh, attractive, um, high quality paperbacks that are not going to kill your wallet. Mm-hmm. Um, you, there's so much to choose from. We, oh, I love that they have multiple translations of, of, uh, the same works. Ovid's um,
0: Metamorphoses is my favorite example. The Lombardo one, which is brilliant. And yep. then the, uh, the uh, Ambrose translation as well, so you can see the same poem, the same work from different refracted angles.
1: Yes. My myth students right now are right in the middle of, of Stanley Lombardo's translation of the Odyssey. Oh, yeah. and um, oh, So is
0: that the one with the moonshot? The
1: moonshot on the front. Okay. And uh, it's, it's great. A lot of students come into this stuff intimidated, thinking, I'm not going to get this. This is weird, foreign uh, stuff. And Lombardo's translation is so readable. Um, fresh and and so uh, so approachable and fresh yeah and that they um, they walk away
0: with a lot of confidence about about what they're learning it's incredible great. it's incredible great. yep so what would you say about uh, Hackett's catalog is it uh, small medium large it's wide-ranging of course we focus
1: on the classics here right. but they have stuff they have Islamic studies they have um, Eastern philosophy South
0: American studies yes
1: it's all over the place so mm-hmm. uh, listener do yourself a favor go to hackettpublishing.com. uh check out their wide array of, of offerings. Uh, find the books that you want, put them in the grocery basket. And Dave, what's the coupon code there? The
0: coupon code is AN2024, right. ad nauseum 2024. Yes. And I've, I've got some anecdotal evidence recently that our listeners are, in fact, patronizing Hackett for what they need. Fantastic. So grateful for that. Thank you so much, listeners, for supporting our efforts. Uh, you know, we have things to pay for here around the studio. Um, costs of delivering uh, this this content, and so your support of Hackett is is really appreciated. It's
1: great. So use that coupon code that will get you 20% off your entire order and free shipping. You can't get that at uh, danube.com no. or nile.com. <laughs> Are you
0: talking about the river-based Book Emporium I, retailers? I think
1: I am, yes. Rubber,
0: the R-B-B-E-R. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah.
1: yeah. Exactly. That's a, it's a, it's a formidable consortium, but yes, uh, Hackett is, uh, is, yeah. is up to the task. Hackett
0: is very dry and arid by comparison. <laughs> That's right. There's no deluge, no diluvian uh, nonsense. Indeed. Check it out. Okay, Jeff, as we get back into it now, mm-hmm. in the Boyle article, yep. uh, she condenses this, distills it. You like that? I do. Nicely for us. She <laughs> makes a number of claims as she deals with Erasmus's groundbreaking decision to revive Sermo. The first one is this, quote, Sermo is the most ancient extant Latin translation for Logos in the Johannine Prologue. It conserves faith's witness to Christ, the eloquent discourse of God, a witness historically diminished by the truth, which the translation of verbum served, and for contemporary philosophies and scientific linguistics which recognize meaning in the sentence, not the word, it may make better sense than a theology of the word hmm. okay, so you follow that what she what yeah. she's saying here
1: I, she kind of lost me at the end there, okay uh, but uh, can you unpack that? yeah,
0: I think I can. I think that what she is saying is that most uh, modern day philologists hmm. and linguistics, are skeptical of the notion that an individual word can carry meaning.
1: Ah, oh, okay. So, right. You... So
0: it's not as though the the word "bull," for example, we right. have here in the studio. I'm um, looking at it right now. We have a little um, bull made out of obsidian. Yes, it was, it was gotten in Mexico. I threw out the word "bull" to you without any context, without any surrounding words. It has too many uh, denotations to have any fixed connotation. Right. And I think this is, Boyle's claim, this is the regnant understanding of how words work. This is Chomsky linguistics. Exactly. Yes. And it's not a platonic notion that words have an enduring meaning. Right. Now, at this point, many people get a little bit uncomfortable because, especially a more conservative folk like myself, they think this is an argument for a kind of moral relativism or subjectivism, mm. that a word can mean anything you want it to. Right. But that isn't really the claim. It's just that meaning is established by how people actually use it. Yes. And uh, a word like um, like verbum, she would say, it doesn't have a specific fixed meaning on its own. And, and um, neither does sermo, but sermo has the right denotations to secure the connotation.
1: Right, right. Well, it gets really complicated in that... Um, you know, when I when I was at the beginning of the episode, I was talking about how I don't. i am always been kind of uncomfortable with the English translation of a word. Yes, for logos. And, and for I think logos. that because because when I hear the word "word," I tend to kind of define it as something fairly simple. Correct. It's like something denoted by by alphabetic characteristics. Right? Exactly. Um, but that's also that's different than saying. That's what werbum has always meant. Correct. Right. So it has, it, it, what, did werbum at some point also have kind of this range of meaning or meanings that perhaps the, our word word today does not?
0: No. Werbum has a narrower range of meanings than either word or sermo.
1: And Boyle is saying that sermo, because of its wider ranging, is perhaps the better choice.
0: Yes. Not just its wider range, but it includes one important denotation, which is the idea of speech. Whereas, uh, yes, right, right. And so we're going to have to get into the nitty, the nittius grittius, as mm-hmm. you said before long. Um, but whereas, verbum means a a, a discrete phoneme, right? Yes. Like a sound. Yeah. Sermo is best represented, she says, by oratio. And this was Erasmus's argument. The Latin, I'm not sorry, hologos, excuse me. Yes. The Greek hologos is best represented by the Latin word oratio, which means conversation or. Or a speech as delivered. Yes. However, Erasmus said, "oratio" is a third declension feminine noun. And because it's a feminine noun, the gender isn't exactly right to to match halagos, uh, both because halagos is masculine and because the theology of John 1, 1, here Augustine and others, uh, identifies halagos as the second person of the Trinity. Uh, yeah, right, right. God, the son. Yes. Which it would be, according to Erasmus and others, and I agree with them, um, not appropriate to represent with a feminine noun. Right. Which Even is, though the idea is totally unobjectionable right. and, and probably better.
1: And something you completely miss once you're using a uh, language like English. Correct. Right. Which is non-gendered. Right. Right. Oh, that's, that's really, really interesting. Okay. Okay.
0: So the first part there at the bottom of the page, uh, the the part about Tertullian and Cyprian, here's the historical argument that Erasmus advances. Jeff, can you take that part, please? Sure.
1: Tertullian and Cyprian quote sermo in every citation of the opening verses of the Johannine uh, prologue. In addition to eight quotations, there is Tertullian's valuable impartial testimony in Adversus Praxian that the custom of Latin Christians was to read in Principio erat sermo, Although he preferred ratio to sermo, he's making it even more complicated. Yeah, so
0: the, so there, is, um, there is another candidate. Yeah. How shall we take hal- halogos? Well, sermo, ratio, and uh, verbum are three candidates. Now, I think somewhere between ratio, which is feminine, and sermo is really what um, halogos represents. You say between
1: ratio and sermo? Is that yes. What you said? Okay. Yeah. Well,
0: because the idea is um, animals don't have hoy logoy i'm going to voice the unpopular position that animals are irrational okay I know there's probably enough to end the podcast right there. Well,
1: you grew up on a farm, right? So yeah. You know what you're talking about.
0: Well, I don't, right. none of the cows were out there doing <laughs> trigonometry and, and studying Cicero. Right. So right. I love them, right. but I don't think that, anyway.
1: What, what I've learned from uh, Chick-fil-A billboards is that cows are just really bad spellers. Yeah. And
0: they can barely paint. <laughs> right. How, how, how is it a compliment to cows? That's funny, Jeff. How is it a compliment to cows to portray them as bad spellers? I know. Exactly. Right, right. I don't think so. Anyway. Okay. Uh, so where was I? Yeah. Animals don't a- have, have hoilagoi, yeah. right? Because um, that requires in- intelligence and rationality. So mm-hmm. the ratio leads to the sermo, and the sermo is evidence of the ratio. Okay. Cicero has this great uh, false etymology about the relationship between ratio and o-ratio. Okay. It's a false etymology. In other words, those two Latin words don't share a common ancestor. Right. But um, he would say that, you know, ratio is reasoning. The o-ratio is how the reasoning is expressed by your os, by your mouth. Oh, okay. Which, again, uh, listener, this is false. It's not a correct etymology, but it's memorable.
1: It's, it's, it's useful. For it's it. very useful. Yes.
0: Yeah. So we got those three candidates. Then what about, uh, what about Cyprian there?
1: He says, Cyprian twice quotes uh, John 1, one in Adversus Judeus Ad Quirinum as in principio fuit sermo et sermo erat apodeum, et deus erat sermo. He also interprets sermo as Christ in three psalm verses and a passage from the Book of Revelation. Cyprian is acknowledged a superior source of the Old Latin Bible because of its antiquity and because he repeats almost one-ninth of the New Testament. But if the modern theory of dual North African and European sources for the Old Latin Bible is correct, then sermo in Tertullian and Cyprian may only demonstrate the former tradition. No European patristic writings in Latin contemporaneous with Tertullian survive for comparison. Sermo remains, then, the earliest extant Latin translation of Logos in John one one, and on Tertullian's word, the reading commonly circulated.
0: Yeah. Okay. That's a silver bullet, isn't it? Yeah, I would say so. That's a silver bullet that Erasmus was correct uh, that Cermo is the most ancient reading. Yeah. And therefore um, is the most ancient translation. Um, Commonly accepted translation of Halagos, therefore he's on solid ground in reintroducing it.
1: Isn't that just another form of the argument to authority, though?
0: Just, be- just, be- just because it's the oldest, it's... It's the best. Well, it's legitimate because it's oldest. Okay. All Are right. you saying that the uh, the ancients don't hold um, full authority with you?
1: I no, I'm I'm not. Well, no. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> but I mean, it's it's also I think that. Do you want
0: me to question your conservative uh, bona fides? Yeah.
1: I think that. Well, I think that you know Erasmus. Um, I don't think Erasmus would disagree with me in in saying that he's not simply saying, well, Sermo's right because Tertullian said it's right.
0: No, he's not saying he's, that. He's
1: saying that it's, this is worth looking at the Greek again and considering the full range of these meanings.
0: Yeah. yeah. Okay. So let's skip ahead right to the very last page of the article just for a moment. Yeah. In his acclaimed analysis of the doctrine of the word, this is the final paragraph, says Boyle, in his acclaimed analysis of the doctrine of the word, Bernard Lonergan, a famous uh, theologian of the 20th century, Assumes that verbum was the traditional translation for logos in the Latin Church before Augustine. Hmm. That is not so, as the reader has seen. So here's here's why the appeal to authority is important. Because those who support verbum, they even said to um, Erasmus, as we saw, you're changing the tradition, which is to be unquestioned right. for a thousand years, you're in fact correcting St. John, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, uh, Because, I mean, St. John, of course, did not speak Latin. Right. He chose Hologos. But if Verbum has some kind of um, unquestioned superiority, then, you know, we can't change it.
1: Right, right.
0: And I guess after we move along from uh, Cyprian, we have a couple of other church fathers to mention. Uh, This would be Novation in his tract on the Trinity. Uh, He uses Verbum. And according to Boyle, this is the first occurrence of Verbum as a translation for Logos. (laughs) But Novation also uses Cermo. After this, uh, after Novation, she says, this ambivalence about Cermo and Verbum disappears until Augustine revives it. Hilary of Poitiers, he died in 367, Uh, cites nine times, cites the opening verses of the Johannine Prologue, and in every instance, Logos is translated as Verbum. So now Verbum's starting to gain some um, precedence. By the 4th century, Verbum is universally preferred in the West. Eusebius Versalensis' treatise on the Trinity quotes Verbum in every citation of the Prologue. His evidence is important not only because he may have transmitted the oldest European version of the Gospels, uh, preserved in the Codex uh, Virtulensis, but because he prefixes his citations of the verse with the explicit phrase, as it is written. Hmm. So now we see verbum starting to gain the upper hand.
1: Okay. Right.
0: And what about on 163, Jeff? What, what do we learn about verbum uh, versus sermo from Lactantius?
1: Sure. Uh, again, Boyle. Meanwhile, how do the churches in Africa read the verse? lactantius quotes werbum as the translation for logos in john 1 1 but in the context of his demonstration that logos means sermo or ratio arnobius does not record the verse while marius victorinus preserves the greek logos throughout his latin hymns on the trinity
0: yeah so the third individual there that's the the punting right let's just take the word logos lambda omicron gamma omicron sigma just keep it transliterate it and represent it with Roman letters, right? right? L-O-G-O-S. Yeah. And then you solve the problem in one sense. But there's a limit, right? There's a limit for how much you can do that. Yeah. In the Gospel of John, there are a number of important theological ideas that are, you know, rich and difficult. How many of them are you going to leave untranslated?
1: Right. Well, I mean, you could do that, but you, you, you need a footnote, right? Yes. To, to, to unpack that,
0: right? And the footnote says, this means either sermo... Uh, or verbum, or maybe ratio, or maybe oratio. <laughs> it's difficult,
1: right? So you think uh, Victorinus there is—he's uh, it's it's a punt. He's getting—he's uh, oh, d- a lazy way out. <laughs> but he's also
0: writing hymns. Mm. Oh yeah, and, and right. so here's a different genre, of course. Right? Have you ever had this? Uh, you read something in a song or in a hymn, and you think, uh, that's a little suspect." The, yes. The logic, the theology, the history, but. It, I don't want to say they get a pass, but there is a different standard. Right. Right.
1: It's, it's, I often find it's because, oh, they did that because they needed that rhyme. Oh, yeah. Right? So the rhyme is, is more important than the historicity. Correct number of
0: <laughs> syllables. Right. Well, I was an undergraduate at that institution where we both matriculated. Yes. Uh, someone came up to me and we were in discussion about church music and they criticized the, um, I think it's a revivalist hymn. Um, He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me, he talks with me. You know that one? Of course. Yeah. The end is, um, you ask me now how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. Yes. That's the conclusion. Yeah, yeah. And this person had some good, cogent, trenchant criticisms of the conclusion, right, as uh, theologically defective. Hmm. Well, I agree that's not good epistemology. I know he lives because I have a feeling in my heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I tried to counter-argue, and I'm no fan of that hymn. I think it's, f- frankly, pretty weak. It's never been my favorite hymn. No, I, I find it cutesy and sing-songy. Yeah. But it's not a theological treatise. Right. It It isn't... You, you can't expect it to do more than it was designed to, to yeah, do. Yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's
0: just, just kind of a sidebar. Right. But. Marius yeah. Victorinus, let's just keep uh, Logos as Logos, but presented in Roman letters. Yeah, it's, it probably sang better. Problem solved. Yeah. Yeah. So Jeff, as the article continues, um, what does Boyle say about, you know, some speculation as to Jerome's choice?
1: Sure. Uh, Boyle writes, perhaps Jerome was ignorant of sermo as a traditional translation for Logos in John one. Without leaving an explanation, he chose werbum, a decision which
0: astonished Erasmus. Yeah. So So what do you think? Is it? Is it reasonable to think that Jerome just didn't know? Well, what Tertullian and Novation and uh, Hillary, which was a younger contem- who was a younger contemporary?
1: It would seem unlikely.
0: It does seem unlikely. Yeah.
1: Um. See, uh, Jerome, his dates, uh, fourth century. Like,
0: yes, uh, okay. fourth into early fifth.
1: All oh, right. So I mean, I think that um, he was
0: alive as late as 410 okay. when uh, Rome was sacked. I don't know his exact date of death.
1: Yeah. It would. It would. I would find it very surprising if he, right. if he didn't know this. Um, uh, Shall I continue with Boyle? Yes, okay. please. Um, although the fathers sometimes use the words interchangeably, sermo and werbum are not synonymous. They may even be regarded as antonyms. Werbum may, may be argued a grammatically inaccurate, at least inappropriate translation for logos in John 1.1. Among its denotations, logos means speech, a continuous statement, narrative, oration, a verbal expression or utterance, a particular utterance, or saying, expression, utterance, speech regarded formally. Both the New Testament and Greek patristic literature employ these meanings. Even in the classical lexicon, where other meanings were more significant, logos signified a phrase, complex term, sentence, or complete statement in opposition to a discrete word, wherebum, It was a continuous statement such as a fable, legend, story, or speech delivered in a court of assembly. Rarely meaning a single word, logos could never signify grammatically a vocable. vocable, um, And then she gives a number of of Greek words. uh, Epos. Epos, Lexis, onoma, Hrema.
0: Yeah. So those are the four words, Epos, Lexis, onoma, Hrema, which can signify a uh, grammatically discrete idea, evocable, right? Evocable, yes. And that is closer to verbum, um, but logos never means that. Yes. Is her claim. And so in that sense, logos and verbum would be antonyms. Yes. Okay. Right. Logos is the act of speech or the idea, the organizing principle and thinking behind human communication. Warebum is that little packet of data which uh, can't have, according to Chomskyan understanding, which by and large I think is accurate, yeah, can't have a fixed meaning on its own.
1: Right. That answers the question I had earlier. You know, whether you know Werebum at some point had a kind of a broader range of of meaning than our word, word seems to suggest. Right. And so here Boyle is saying, uh, no, Werbum has, has always been something much, much narrower than something like sermo. Yes. Okay.
0: There is a hint somewhere, either in the article or the monograph, I can't remember which, that before classical times, so say before Caesar and Cicero, Werbum was a little broader. Okay. But by the time that Jerome encountered the word, um, it had a fixed meaning in uh, classical authors. Okay, okay. On, wh- on whom he would have relied. Now we've been using the terms connotation and denotation yeah. quite a bit in this episode and I think it's time for a definition. Let's do it. All right, so this is from Merriam-Webster. A word's denotation is its plain and direct meaning or meanings. It's what the word explicitly means, that is, what is fully and clearly expressed by a word. Now this, you know, this definition here uh, I'm editorializing would not square with a Chomskyan understanding. Right. But the definition goes on. A word's connotation is what the word implies or suggests, that is, the nuances and shades of meaning that the word brings along with it, apart from what it explicitly names or describes. You want to continue?
1: Sure. Um, Take the noun aroma. The denotation of aroma in the aroma of coffee is basically smell, the characteristic of something you perceive with your nose. But the connotation of aroma is typically a pleasant and pervasive smell. People generally apply the word aroma to coffee only if they like the smell.
0: That's correct. Okay, yeah. Here's an example. Yeah. Yesterday, I was announcing our uh, church potluck, yes. which followed the service. And I said, you can probably smell those odors coming out, f- out of the kitchen. <laughs> and your response was exactly the response of everyone else. Yes,
1: exactly. Right. They laughed.
0: Right. Why?
1: Because odor implies something Bad. nasty. Right? Correct. And I said, oh,
0: I'm sorry. I should have said, you can smell the aromas coming out of the kitchen. And then Perfect. we all knew- Oh, it's something good. Yes. So aroma and odor, the denotation, basically identical. Right. It's something that you, you perceive smell your through no- your nose. Through your nose, yep. But the connotations, very, very different. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. So we did that with the naming of this podcast, right? Right. Uh, you, your idea was ad nauseum, right? Mm-hmm. The hmm uh, the, the denotation of ad nauseum is vomiting. Yes. Right? But the connotation is supposed to be something else. We're trying to redefine and reengineer the connotation. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Right. Yes. Good. Okay. So how does this
0: relate then to a sermo versus verbum?
1: So sermo and verbum it seems have a very similar denotation. Right. But in terms of their connotation, they are something vastly different.
0: Okay. Yeah. And in fact could even be antonyms. Yes. um, Boyle says. Yes. Which means that as a representation of Halagos, this is Erasmus's argument, Verbum is off the table. Right. And in fact, what we have to have instead is sermo.
1: Exactly. Yes. And I think I, I, think I have to agree. hmm Right. It doesn't solve the problem of uh, the English translation, though. Right? Uh, we don't have the choice. No. Between a werbum or a... Uh, well, we, we have a, a werbum, but right. what's, what's the English... All the, Verb. K- the translations of, of
0: sermo... Sermon nah
1: in the beginning was the sermon no because no, it's usually right.
0: later in the service Badam <laughs> <Yeah>. ching <laughs> yeah well a, a number of different english translators have tried to get around this uh but it's clumsy yeah and in fact th- this is why there are preachers to explain things uh that are hard to grasp in a single word or in a moment
1: yes exactly
0: yeah so let's let's uh, fast forward a little bit okay. uh, this is page 165 of the article We'll get into a little bit of a Anselm of Canterbury and so forth. Um, although from Jerome's redaction until Erasmus's, the translation of Logos in John 1.1 1, 1 came to be transmitted as verbum. So in other words, whether Jerome knew about Cyprian and Tertullian and so forth, whether or not he knew, he opted for verbum and not sermo, which yeah. was the older. From that time until 1519, verbum was uh, dominant. Nobody said sermo. And some of Canterbury, Remigius, Hugh of St. Cher, Nicholas of Lyra, Thomas Aquinas, and the Glossa Ordinaria all interpret biblical occurrences of sermo as Christ. So here's the theological issue, right? Exegeting Hebrews 4.12, for example, Thomas Aquinas refers sermo to the Son of God. Considered in itself, he writes, that word sermo seems to present a difficulty, but if we consider another translation, the meaning is plainer. For here we have sermo, In Greek, it is logos, which is the same as verbum, whence sermo, i.e., verbum. So, what Aquinas is saying is that the word sermo has that broad connotation of speech, conversation, discourse, etc. And because logos refers to the second person of the Trinity, uh, Christ Jesus incarnate, um, which is a unified idea, there was a theological discomfort with representing it, uh, him, by this word sermo, which had a broader connotation. Okay. okay. It seemed to pose a threat to the unity ah. of the divine and human natures in the second person of the Trinity. So
1: the word werbum right. better expresses kind of the the oneness of God.
0: Yes, precisely because it is so um, narrow yes. in its uh, Denotation. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Which is a sophisticated um, point, but I mean, you can see it, right? Yeah. It, we we can grasp the problem. Um, I like what she says at the bottom of one sixty-five as the as the argument develops further. Could you read that portion? Sure.
1: Did the translation of Werbum for logos in John one one originate in lexical chance or in a theological apology? This is impossible to establish on the evidence. Difficult to assess. But there appears to be in Latin patristic thought, and this is speculation on a rationale for verbum, a fusion or confusion of the doctrine of Christ as revelation, logos, and as the only begotten, monogenes, so that one son has been conceptualized as one word.
0: Right. So I'm not sure that I agree with everything she says, but I think that she's presenting a well, um, the problem, right? Mm -hmm. In Latin patristic thought, she says it's speculation for verbum, um, the doctrine of Christ as revelation, Logos, in the beginning was the Logos, and then he's also the only begotten son, monogenes. so then the, the word verbum was chosen because it can better represent both meanings, I think is what uh, she's suggesting. Okay, okay, yeah. They thought, well, well, let's just use verbum because sermo doesn't really capture the second meaning, uh, but it gets the first, and right. so it doesn't lead us into any problems i I believe that's what she's saying okay okay a little bit further down um she develops this further she says concerned to distinguish god's persons against the modalistic claims of Sibelius and others augustine's argument lapsed into a problematic computation which he inherited from his adversaries whereas he might have argued that this one son is one oration one speech he understood the son as the word the father's single undivided utterance Mm. Would oratio or sermo have compromised the only begotten Son any more than the unity of a discourse is compromised by its composition from many words? A brilliant rhetor, Augustine did not develop a theology of the Son as copious discourse, logos, the Father's full and eloquent oration. Despite his modesty about his speculation on the Trinity, his partial perspective on the mystery of the logos was wholly adopted. So I think we could say, verbum was the safe choice. Mm. Mm. Because yeah. it left unresolved some of the problems of exactly what is John saying about the relationship between the eternal Word um, and Christ incarnate as the Father's communication right. with um, humankind.
1: Yeah, and that's very that's very nuanced. In, it in, is in, in a way that I mean, I think just when I was just thinking about this, just generically, it just seemed like compared to Cerma Werbum was such a seemed kind of like a a, a lazy yeah. Um, um, uh, too simple of a choice, correct. But this kind of this this you can really see the grappling, correct. of how to best express this really complex idea, correct.
0: Yeah, I still think that Erasmus made the right choice, mm-hmm. but I'm influenced by my fondness for Beza, you know, who yes. t- who took up Erasmus's hmm. uh, suggestion. So maybe as we start to wrap up, yeah. we can just look uh, for a moment at what Beza did with this, Let's and do it. Uh, then we'll call it a day. Sounds
1: good. All right, Dave, so what does Beza have to say about this, uh, okay. this business?
0: I'd love to tell you. So this is from his Annotaciones Maiores in Novum Testamentum, the 1589 edition, and uh, it's from page 331. So if I could read a little bit of Latin first, and then I'll translate it. He says, Sermo ille, hologos, vulgata verbum, it est torrema, quadrecte mutavit erasmus, veterum etim fratus actuatate, puta cipriani, lactantii, hilarii, hieronymi, ambrosi Augustini. sed apud graecos late patet logos, nam et rationem et rationem, et definitionem, et alia non nulla declarat, unde factum ut graeci praesertim theologi, Quodrum vestigia secuti sunt latini. So this means, he cites a sermo illa. In the beginning was sermo illa, i.e. hologos. Then Beza says, uh, the Vulgate has verbum, that is tohrema, which means, as uh, Boyle said, a discrete unit of speech. And I'm, I'm translating Beza here. recte mutawat, which Erasmus correctly changed. But he was also relying upon the authority of the ancients, namely Cyprian, Lactantius, Hilary, Jerome, Ambrose, and Augustine. But among the Greeks, logos, he says, latte patet, has a broader connotation. That's how I would take late mm, patet. Mm-hmm. Uh, for it means speech, oratio, and reason, rationem, and definition, and several other things, alia nonula. Uh, therefore, it came to pass that the Greeks, especially the theologians, whom uh, the La- whose footsteps the Latin followed, the Latins followed. Excuse me, interpreted this passage while wanting to explain in what sense the sun is called logos. Mm. And then uh, he will go on to um, quote from Gregory Nazianzus in- include some more Greek, etc. Mm. But Beza's main point is that. Erasmus did the right thing. It's uh, errecte mutavit Erasmus. He correctly changed the reading from verbum to sermo. Yeah, he had good authority from the patristics, and he properly understood that logos apodreicos late patet has greater extent of meaning. We would say um, a wider connotation.
1: Excellent. Well, hey, that's. I think that's a good place to to. to to stop and to put this one to and, rest and wrap it up.
0: I agree. All Is right. there a particular reason why we have to get out of the vomitorium?
1: Well, I mean, the, if you you heard that banging up there, yes, didn't I you? did. Right? So it's a, I heard a bunch of like toolboxes and really being being, being rattled. What's and, happening? And, and people hauling in lumber. Really? So yes, it's this uh, it's this uh, consortium of of people bu- building these small buildings to to recite um, a verse in. That's the what? it's the shed poets society.
0: Really, the yeah. shed poets society. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. I don't know why they chosen. Our a so. bunker but, so what
0: they do is they they build um, independent little uh, wooden lean tos. Yes, and then in there they read their poetry. They do wow. exactly
1: the, the Shed Poet Society. Wow, they're, incredible! They're, they're an eccentric bunch. And well, they're, we better get out of they're, here. They're cranky, so let's okay. get out of their way. Yeah.
0: But before we do, we have to um, we have to do a few things. Don't we do, we, Jeff?
1: Uh, Dave. Tell us a bit about uh, the Moss Method and your uh, LPSI program. Sure. Yep.
0: So Moss Method for Greek is a program I've developed that will take you from neophyte to erudite. That's correct. If you know little or no Greek, I can help you know a lot. Lot of Greek and become really expert. I've been studying this language for a long time. I consider myself a veteran student. And when you're learning something challenging and unfamiliar, you need a more experienced guide, a psychopompos. Yes. To take you by the hand, lead you into the mysteries of the Greek language. So this is expert, self-paced, accessible. Go to mossmethod.com. Check out the program. I routinely run uh, sales and discounts. We get together on Friday morning. Uh, We're reading some Xenophon together, some starter Xenophon. All right. And uh, we've got folks from California. We have folks from Kansas, from Switzerland, from uh, Australia, from... New York uh-huh. getting together to read some Greek it's a lot of fun
1: fantastic and you can you can also learn Latin
0: yes you can uh, through so your programs Hans Orberg's lingua Latina per se Illustrata, which I like to say uh, is best translated as Latin teaches itself mm-hmm. you just stand by and learn uh, go to my website latinperdiem.com. check out the program I know there are many uh, competitors out there there are some good programs out there mine's not the only good one. But I do think mine is the best value because it's that that combination of competency and expertise, accessibility and a reasonable price.
1: And just as with the Moss method, um, you have a lot of free stuff available. I do. How many Latin per diem
0: videos do you have now? We are right now at 2000, uh, more than 2040. Fantastic. The current episode is on another 16th century guy. The current series, John Eccolampadius, House Lamp. Is that the what guy, his name means? Yeah, house lamp. <laughs> he took a Greek name, house lamp. Nice. So, I'm sure that he was always going around the house and flicking the lights off. Yeah. So, uh, it's on his work, the joy of the resurrection, De Gaudio Resurrecti Onus. So, Very cool. you can tune in and get lots of free Latin, and if you like it, you can pay for some too. Sounds good. Jeff, whom do we need to thank?
1: Uh, as always, Mishka, our great engineer who who puts this together and slaps on the the duct tape, but in a way that you can never see it.
0: Oh, it's beautiful it's work beautiful.
1: of art. Um, Scott Vinzen and Ken Tamplin. Uh, those guys with the, the screaming guitar, that that's the those are the, the geniuses behind the licks that you hear throughout yeah, the episode. Yeah, it
0: makes us feel kind of hip and yeah. cool. We like that kind of music. Exactly, It's a nice combination of hopefully some substantive content with some lighthearted music to introduce it. Absolutely. All right. And Dave, if people want to get in touch with us, what should they do? They should write to Jeff at ad nauseum.com. Don't forget the V. That's the place for all your complaints and uh, disgruntledments. I can take it.
1: I can take it. And if, and? You, and if you want to contact Dave, it's dave at ad nauseum.com. Again, don't forget the V.
0: Go and to our website.
1: Yes. And pick it, up a t-shirt. It, yes, exactly. And write to Dave if you have all kinds of flowery uh, flattery, because that makes him really
0: uncomfortable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I like to say there are two things I don't handle well.
1: Yes. What are they again?
0: Praise and criticism. That's right. <laughs> but get yourself a kent Dokent yes. t-shirt. Uh, what hurts teaches in a nice um, greek Attic vase theme. Jeff, next week, what do we have going on? We
1: have, um, I think for the third time yes. on the podcast, our, our, our friend, our former colleague and mentor, Ken Brett.
0: He's like the Ed McMahon of this show, he, isn't he? He is.
1: And he's coming to talk about uh, something right in his wheelhouse at yeah. Herodotus. Yeah.
0: He wrote his dissertation on Herodotus. We have never covered Herodotus on this program, but uh, it promises to be a delightful episode. Now, whatever happened to Anna Maria von Skurman that we promised listeners last time? That
1: our, our, our interviewees, yes. they had to reschedule. Okay. And so that's coming up in a week or two, I It's believe. coming up, right?
0: Yep. We didn't just cancel it. No. Okay.
1: No, no I'm looking forward to that. Yep.
0: And Dave, you have our gustatory parting shot today. Yes, I do. And uh, this comes from a poet named Khalil Gibran. And uh, I'm going to read it. You know, I have to sometimes resist the urge to make fun of things. Okay. <laughs> you don't have to, though, if you want to let loose on this one. Um, I'm not really sure what to make of it's it. This
1: is the guy who wrote The Prophet, right? Isn't that right? That
0: sounds right. Okay. Yeah, not Salman Rushdie. No, no, no. No, no.
1: no the, um, the, the Gibran.
0: Okay, Gibran. Okay. okay. Yeah. He says, And when you crush an apple with your teeth, say to it in your heart, your seeds shall live in my body and the buds of your tomorrow shall blossom in my heart and your fragrance shall be my breath and together we shall rejoice through all the seasons.
1: But I'd never make it through a meal if I had to do that to everything on my plate.
0: <laughs> all, all, I, all I can think when I come away from this is apple breath. <laughs> apple breath.
1: Apple breath, exactly. Yeah. Right,
0: wow. Uh, speaking of apple breath, yeah. thanks for listening. Thanks.